Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. I'm really excited about today. Uh, with me is a good friend, a former ATP great, and a current Southern California coaching guru, Chris Lewis. Uh, as a way of introduction, here are f- just a few, and I'm saying just a few because I could spend all day talking about his accomplishments. But first off, he was a 1983 Wimbledon finalist. Uh, he was a finalist in 10 ATP, you know, major events, uh, you know, the larger events uh, in singles. He won three of them, and he won double uh, eight doubles events for a total of 11. He was the highest of 19 in the world in 1984. Uh, he was considered one of the fittest players, if not the fittest player on tour during his tenure. He was the number one junior world rank In 1975, he won Wimbledon Junior Championships, and he was a finalist at the Junior U.S. Open. From Auckland, New Zealand, he was inducted into the New Zealand uh, uh, Sports Hall of Fame in 1986. I could go on, but he is also known for his world-class coaching, which started on pretty good footing when he coached the Iceman, uh, Yvonne Lendl, who later attained number one in the world. And then since moving to Southern Cal many years ago, he has coached players to number one world rankings in the juniors, top national rankings in the juniors as well. Uh, in fact, there was a point in time where I, I tried to talk him to being my assistant down there, and uh, uh, apparently he made the right move because he's just uh, killing it down there. So uh, we'll learn more about Chris as we chat, but people learn best through story, not lists per se. And he has some great stories that you'll appreciate. Uh, so let's get started. Chris, how you doing? Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Steve, for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, good, good. Um, is it sunny down there? It's actually it was sunny today, but the forecast, believe it or not, for tomorrow is for rain. So hopefully they've got it wrong again. <laughs> well, it's, it's about 25, 28 degrees right here. So I'm, I'm still walking around in shorts. You know, I, people think I'm nuts, but that's the way it is, you know. Once a, well, after... After hearing that sort of those sort of temperatures, I'm glad I'm where I am and not where you are, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we get started, I do have to say I've always thoroughly uh, enjoyed, uh, you know, talking with people and or coaching and, and people from Australia and New Zealand. And, uh, you know, Chris may not know this, but I, I was uh, in New Zealand for a few weeks. I was training in some martial arts. And then I competed in an international um, event in Canberra, Aust- uh, Australia. And I actually went to, uh, I met your brother in Auckland at the training center there. And uh, then I went over and met with the National Training Center in Australia. But the thing I love, we were staying at a place and we drove over there and there were just cows on the side of the road and that we had to kind of wait for them to pass. And then, uh, you know, we lived there. The only place we could get internet is we had to go in town to kind of rent it from a cafe. But I loved it. I mean, I I mean, I would move down there in a heartbeat. The people down there in in, uh, in New Zealand, I mean, just their real pleasure. And the thing I founded, found about in terms of, and I think you people listening will understand this when you listen to Chris, is, uh, you know, Kiwis are just really good sports, and they're just classy, and they work their butts off, and they really enjoy a sport. Like, if you ever, you know, uh, watch, oh, no, I'm going to forget the name. You're, uh, you're all rugby, um, uh, all blacks. 
I mean, just they personify just the grit of the Kiwis. And uh, so anyways, uh, you know, you'll you'll kind of get a flavor for that when you listen to Chris. Well, let's get started with some discussion here. And um, FYI, for you listeners, what I want you to do is I want you this is your homework. Later in the program, I'll find out what Chris's answers are to questions I ask just about everybody. And these questions are this. What are your top five characteristics of a champion? So when you're listening, I want you to kind of listen to what he says and then maybe see if you can kind of go uh, guess where he's going to go with that. And another one, Chris mentioned this uh, sometime I, I was talking, talking to him, and he said, what are the things that shape a champion? So what are the five top characteristics of a champion? And then more specifically or in a different way, what are the things that shape a champion? So let's get started. So Chris, um, let's start with you. Uh, your beginning, your journey. You know, many players are diff- have different journeys to the top. There's not just one way to make the path from beginner uh, to world-class player or elite player or even, you know, a great college player, etc. For our younger listeners, what was your beginning like, your early journey that they might learn from it? For me, it was environmental, Steve. I was, uh, I lived in a, a relatively small city in New Zealand, and I lived in a small street. My parents played tennis, and as a result of that, we lived next door to a tennis club. Now, every day after school, I, along with the other children on the street, would congregate at the club, and we actually had our own little tennis community there. I was six or seven years old. Uh, That is where I first developed a passion for the sport. Interestingly, even though I didn't realize it at the time, of those eight or nine players, five of them in that small street ended up representing New Zealand internationally. That was my first experience with understanding just how important an environment is when it comes to uh, excellence, success, and achievement. Incredible. Well, you said five of them. Um, you know, from a s- small country, and they're on the na- international stage, is tennis, is it still that way, do you think, on the, on the elite level, the pro level, that, you, you know, that people like I know uh, Djokovic and Murray grew up together playing, and, you know, even though they're from different countries, but these guys see each other. Well, you're from New Zealand, so you're all playing. Um, it, 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 was it a small, kind of a small brotherhood back then, or is it, is it kind of the same now, you think? It's very different now. Uh, in the sense that there's a lot more access to information and things have become a lot more global. So you can live in New Zealand uh, today and you have access to what's going on internationally. In my day, you didn't. It was all local. There was no internet. Look, there wasn't even live television co- <laughs> coverage of Wimbledon. Right. So you can imagine, you know, you were when you talk about geographical isolation in New Zealand, it was real geographical isolation. Yeah. I did not see a top player play until I was 11 years old. And it was actually when I was 11 that I first realized, even though I'd already developed a passion for the sport and realized it was something I wanted to do uh, for as long as I lived because I'd see my parents do it, I didn't realize you could actually play it as a career. It wasn't real to me until mm. I saw Rod Laver and Tony Roach play at 11 years old. And, and, and until then, until I saw them play, I just read about them and seen the odd delayed telecast on television. I mean, imagine that in today's terms. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something because this is this is this hits dead center to what um, you know clubs club pros uh, you know getting your kids to watch college play go to an event go to a Davis Cup event. This is what Brain Brian is always saying. Get your players to see it because. You know, they, they champions learn through the eyes. And so when you see things like that, because then you don't know what what's out there. And you at 11, 
you know, it, it took you four or five years to actually see that. So when you said you had a passion at seven years old, eight years old, what's that like for a seven or eight year old that, you know, maybe somebody listening, you know, uh, could say, oh, I'm like that or wow, uh, I'm not like that. What, what would that be like? What it, what it was like was when I was in school, I couldn't wait to get out so I could get to the tennis courts. I couldn't wait for Friday night because I knew that the weekend was coming up and I was going to spend the weekend at the tennis club. I couldn't wait to enter tournaments because I wanted to play matches. So all of my thoughts were really at that stage directed to the number one thing in my life, which was tennis. That's when, even though I wouldn't have been able to articulate it, right. uh, I had sincerely developed a passion for the game. And I want to hop back to the comments you made about Wayne, a phenomenal coach, by the way. Uh, he's exactly right. I made the conscious decision to become a pro at 11 years old, and it was purely as a result of seeing the best people in the world play, which, of course, you know, was what you see at Davis Cup. And this happened to be a, an open tournament in Auckland, New Zealand. Tennis uh, had just gone open. But it was then as a result of seeing these players and how incredibly good they were. These are people I just read about, Rod Laver, Tony Roach, etc., uh, that I made that conscious decision as to what I wanted to do for my career as 11 years old. So the impact, you cannot overstate how much that impact impact can have on a young player. Hmm. As a junior, you were number one in the world and won Wimbledon Juniors and got to the U.S. Open final. Did you have early aspirations to be number one in the world or even a top pro player? You know, like when you said you had this, is that on your radar when you were growing up? Oh, absolutely. And the concrete evidence for that was when I saw these top players play, I was out in the backyard against my younger brothers playing imaginary Wimbledon finals because that's what I wanted to one day do. And I actually think it's no coincidence that when you have and set in place these goals and dreams when you're younger, there is a direct link to that and what the outcome is 15 years later. I mean, here I am pretending to be Tony Roach at 11 years old in the backyard playing an imaginary Wimbledon final. Here I am 15 years later playing an actual semi-final with Tony Roach in the coaching box at the center court at Wimbledon as my coach, and I have just made it into the Wimbledon final myself. I mean, tell me that's not a coincidence. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there is a direct connection there, Steve, is that it's then when you start formulating your long-term goals and then putting in place the relentlessness that's required to achieve them that uh, there's an inextricable link there, 100% for sure. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I don't know if you people heard that, the word relentlessness. It's just you have to be relentless. And so one of the things you mentioned there is, uh, you know, obviously, and this is when we're younger, you know, you may think you're going to be uh, number one in the world. Um, but, you know, as people, we tend to get discouraged short term. And th that's part of it. And I think a lot of kids, they think, hey, they've got this goal. You know, I had a former player that played for me in college who wanted to be number one in the world, and, he, and he's, you know, he's coaching the top three girl in the world right now. But that was his goal. And you go out there and you it, it changes. You know, he got an injury, and you go, okay, now I kind of know where I'm at. You know, you know the pecking order. But the point is, is he never let that he never let that dissuade him. If he lost a tournament here or had a setback here, that was still the goal. And I would think something we could encourage people to do is, look, man, if that's your goal, don't let the short-term setbacks uh, be a problem. Would you agree with that? Oh, oh, more than agree with that. Look, let me just concretize that as well. Yeah. So here you've got a long-term goal. 
reaching that goal, it is never a straight line progression upwards, ever. There were always ups and downs, and there's always obstacles in the way. There's always adversity. If it was that easy, everybody would be number one. So you learn very quickly that adversity is part of the package. And then learning to overcome adversity the first, second, third time in the form of difficult conditions, difficult opponents, uh, things that are unexpected that you could do without, and that you learn that after overcoming such adversity, it makes you better for it. You actually become stronger to the point where you almost welcome adversity because you know that when you meet that challenge and rise above it, you're better off for it. And that's, you know, it's just, it comes, it's part and parcel of sport and not just sport, anything in life. It's just not that easy getting to the top. Right. It's a battle, but but it's a battle you embrace, and you know it's it's incredible motivational fuel when you find that you can overcome adversity, because the next time you have to confront it, you know that you're well equipped to deal with it. Right. Your parents, you said, were tennis players. How were they? And you could, you know, for a suggestion to the parents listening. So right now we're kind of in the juniors parents uh, portion of our discussion here. Um, your parents played, and so what role uh, did they do in the coaching or being a tennis parent? What, what what role did your parents play, and what might you suggest to other parents? You know, I'm a coach parent. There's some. There's a whole range. There's people that don't know anything about tennis. There's coaches that actually played, uh, parents that played, and then uh, and they coach, and then there's some that coach but never played. I mean, there's a whole range. So what was your parents' involvement, um, and what do you uh, what advice do you give? Well, in my own case, my own particular case, my parents were nothing but supportive. And I think that's the key word is that you've got to make, if you're a tennis parent and you've had a tennis playing background, or even if you haven't, and you've learned tennis out of a book or from observation, there is a sharp delineation between a coach, being a coach and a parent. And as a coach myself, I've just seen too many examples of parents who in good faith are doing everything they can to help their child along the development pathway. But unfortunately, that line from being parent is crossed over to becoming a coach. And then the child, once that child sees their, what should be their parent is a coach, uh, it normally goes south. Uh, I would say, I almost say that it pretty much always goes south. So I think my advice to any parent is to make sure that the primary role that they keep playing is that of parents and the secondary role is that of coach. Now, it's not easy. It's a, it's a tough balance, but uh, that's the best advice I can give. Describe. And my parents were, were certainly very, very supportive. And I could, would go as far as to say they didn't even attempt to coach me. Mm-hmm. Describe what, uh, what you've observed as going south. Because, for example, you can tell somebody something and they may go, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then, oh, that, that's what it looks like. So from your perspective, well, what does it look like when something goes south? The flags, the red flags of this is when you see the dynamic between the parent and the player and the player being totally unreceptive to what the parent is offering as advice and you sort of see the eye rolling and the body language tells you that they'd rather be anywhere other than where they are, namely being on the tennis court with the parent, uh, you know, that's, that's a dead giveaway. Or you find a, the, the, the essential thing is to remember is that tennis is all, you know, a lot of it is about pressure. There's a tremendous amount of pressure that comes with the sport. And the role of the parent should be to reduce that pressure, not add to it. And any time I would safely say that the parent adds to the pressure, the, there's a direct correlation between that additional pressure 
and the extent to which the relationship between the parent and the child goes bad. And what do you mean by um, increasing pressure? Like, for example, oh, yeah. when I coach, when I coach, I intentionally yeah. create pressure because that you have to learn how to play under pressure. So you know, you play games. You have, hey, you, you can't go here if you do. If you if you don't, if you hit it, you know, I put a rope above the net. Let's say, for example, if you hit above the re- rope, you get a reward. If you go below, you lose points. There's pressure, you know, etc. What do you mean by pressure that such that it's okay? Negative? Let's yeah. let let them treat pressure as a neutral term and say, okay, there's a good pressure and there's a bad pressure. Let's say then that the parent says, look. I can't understand why you're not getting better results. Little Johnny, uh, yeah, who, who's at the program next door, he's doing 10 times better than you are. What's wrong with you? I'm spending all this money on you, and I'm not seeing any results for it, and you're just afraid. That sort of thing is about as unhealthy as it gets. So any pressure like that that sends a signal that the kid is a disappointment to the parent, that is the sort of stuff that I, in my advice is you want the parent to say, look, Whatever happens out there on the court, it's over. And you might have a an objective analysis of the match when things have settled down. But at the end of the day, if you are supportive and however you convey that, if you just say, look, I just love watching you play. It gives me a thrill to see you play matches. And I know you lost today, but boy, did I enjoy watching that match. And let's get out there and work on the things that need to be worked on. That type of approach is healthy. But, you know, it, it, the opposite approach is, oh, my God, you were so bad today, and I can't believe you made so many mistakes after all we've worked on and what's wrong with you. That sort of thing is unhealthy. For the parent who's uh, chasing, uh, who's uh, deciding, you know, tennis over – or not the parent per se, but let's say the parent and the child. So there's – uh, they're deciding tennis over another sport. Maybe they're not experienced. They don't know a lot about tennis. How does a parent decide what coach, clinic, group, or whatever program is right for them? Well, uh, it comes down to the knowledge of the parent about tennis. So take somebody, take a parent who has a child who plays a number of sports and they're just looking to introduce the child to tennis. Uh, I think the things, the essential attributes of a good coaching program is that Number one, let's you know take the younger child. It's got to be fun. The child has got to enjoy going there. It's got to be a serious operation, though, because at the end of the day, people want improvement. So it's got to be conducive to improvement. Uh, it's got to be an environment that embraces an ethos of excellence. It's not a recreational sort of thing where kids are dropped off and it turns into more of a babysitting service. You know, it's got to be a very disciplined, goal-oriented, purposeful sort of environment where the kids are motivated and the, the the sign of it being like that is when the kid can't wait to get there or wants to get to the tennis courts, then you've got a program that works. On the other hand, if on the way to the courts, the kid is complaining about, oh, I don't want to go to tennis and I hate it there, then there's an issue. That's good advice. Uh, because t- uh, tennis is such a tough uh, sport mentally, can you give us an example of a good, bad, and ugly that you might have experienced mentally on the court, either you giving or on the receiving end. You know, some, in other words, some great matches mentally uh, or not for you, or possibly the other player's perspective that you played. Just some, uh, you know, so people can relate. Say, you know what, Chris, he, he was, man, he was uh, won the world as a junior, but he had some bad days too. What would what would that be like? The, I think you mentioned a fist of... set in Wimbledon or something, a qualifying yeah, match the, one time. I there, there is there is. Matches that you can recall where there was a turning point or there was a, a point that the match swung on that was extraordinarily disappointing. And the one that stands out for me, in 1975, I was actually in the last round of Wimbledon qualifying. 
uh, and I was playing a gentleman called Graham Stilwell, good, good English player. And I had a break point in the fifth set. I think it was like five all in the fifth set. And had I won that, the chances were that I would have won my serve and won the match and gone into the Wimbledon main draw. Well, I didn't. I, I played a very timid or tentative return uh, and was kicking myself for, <laughs> I, I don't know, for not actually having the courage to go for the shot. Right. Uh, and that, you know, that was ugly. That was an example of, you know, I, I, it was hard to get over that disappointment. It had a huge impact. But having said that, I learned a huge lesson from it because uh, being in that situation in the future, I would never do it again. It was a massive lesson, and there were incredibly negative consequences. Then, of course, I watched Stillwell go on to make the last 16. He got to the fourth round of Wimbledon that year, and I was essentially a point away from beating him. So here was a huge lesson learned. So after I got over the disappointment, looking back, uh, you know, you hear that it's a, a common saying that you learn more from your losses than your wins, and it was an example of that. So it was an ugly moment at the time, but in the long run, it actually turned out to be to my benefit, I would say. Um, here's a, here's an example of a, an incredibly enjoyable uh, a point that stands out. Semi-finals of Wimbledon, Standard Court. Uh, it's match point, my first match point. And I'm serving to Kevin Curran, who later on went to the final in 1985, lost to Boris Becker. So here I am, serving for the match against Kevin. It's add-in, and I mentioned earlier in the interview that Tony Roach was in the player's box, I look up and acknowledge Tony, and I wasn't a guy that looked for uh, mm. support right. from from you know the team or anybody out there supporting me. But I look up at Tony and said, "Tony, this is for you." Because oh, nice! Without you, you know, without you, that's what the I said. And I looked at Tony, and then Sir Kevin had to return out, and I'm in the final. But that's a point. Looking yeah. back, boy, does that stand out? And it was actually that match was the first time. My only time in my career where I actually lifted my arms in mm. uh, in, in a celebration of the win. So, boy, does that point stand out? Right. Um, you oh, know, one more match. I wish I would have. I wish I'd be able to say that about the final, but that's as close <laughs> as it came. Well, when you said you said uh, you know it was disappointing, it was ugly. You know, how how long did that sting? I mean, did it bother you for days, weeks, or hours, or you know? Oh, definitely. Uh, that would have been on the, the week before Wimbledon started. Yeah, I was still hurting from that. Certainly, you know, days. But then it was offset by the fact that I won junior Wimbledon in the second week of Wimbledon that year. So that trumped it. Yeah. So the best uh, cure that, for a loss that, is get back on there and win. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, get back on the horse. Absolutely. So did it? Yeah, it motivated me. It actually ended up being motivational fuel because I refused to let it happen again. But yeah, had I not won junior Wimbledon, it, that that sort of thing, you know, go on for a month. I know players who would lose matches, and they would lock themselves in their hotel room for three or four days. The <laughs> disappointment. Well, and I think that's important because, uh, I mean, for me personally, I remember losses. I still remember them, and I, you know, uh, it's still a bummer. You know, um, you know, I wasn't one of the world, but you know, I mean, I had a chance to win a match and be national champion in college, and it's like, you know, you lose that, and you think about it, man. There's a big difference between first and second, you know, but but then players, some people think, well, yeah, you gotta, you got, um, you know, you gotta let players. It's okay, you know, you'll get over. It. You know, I think it's okay to actually, you know, decompress for a while. And um, in fact, I know there's even some researchers. This is a kind of a side note, but you know how people spend so much time on iPods and devices. 
before they go into a match and after, they actually don't deal with the sting of a loss because they get right on to their media. And it's okay to think about these things and deal with them and struggle with them and feel bad about it. You know, and then you get out there and hang out with your friends, but then it haunts you again, you know, a couple of days later. And you think, cause that's how you, it should motivate you to practice. Oh, and it does. I think you learned that earlier on. You go back to the early days of, you know, there's a sentiment these days that you hear fairly often that uh, you should take the competition out of sport for young players because uh, it's all about the participation and not the winning, which is, you know, I don't subscribe to that for a second. <laughs> I, you know, I think that's an absurd sentiment <laughs> right, because yes. what what is sport without the competition? And kids keep, keep track of the score anyway. However, uh, you learn to deal with losses when you're younger. Uh, and that is a good thing because you, just as in life, you learn to deal with adversity and things that are outside of your control and you overcome it. And sport and tennis teaches those lessons early. But I got to say one thing, just to expand on that a little, I think you've got to be very careful about uh, the standards that you set for yourself. And the reality is, no matter who you are, you're not going to win every tennis match. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, if you give yourself, set the bar to a height that you can actually meet uh, where you do have control over things, namely tennis, you can say, okay, I am going to make sure that I give my best 100% of the time on every point. Now that you can control. Yes, so that exactly. if you, if, you, if you come off the court, Steve, and you have met that standard, Yes. Is the loss disappointing? Tremendously so. But I think the fact that if you can honestly say to yourself, I gave it my everything, it almost acts as a sort of a spiritual armor against Mm -hmm. that disappointment of the loss so that the loss is much more skin deep rather than the guy that gets out there. He doesn't give it everything. And as a result, he feels terrible about himself. I think it is detrimental to self-esteem and his confidence in the long run. But I think, you know, be very careful about the standards you set for yourself. You're not going to win every match, but you have got control over how hard you try. Well, this is, and this is uh, something like on my website uh, and my, my blogs, I talk about, there's a saying, if you always give your best, you sometimes play your best and one time be the best. I mean, the number one thing is you got to give your best. And, and a lot of people think, well, I do. And they really, people have to, you know, players actually have to learn what their best is. And, and a lot of people perform under that. And it's, and it's a coach's job to make, help people rise to the level where they go, oh, that's my best. You know, you just drain the tank. And then after that, you know, you you could sometimes play your best. You're not always. And then, uh, you know, like for example, from would you agree with this that generally when you're out there on the on the tour, or if you're you know college or one of the top juniors, you don't play your best all the time. Probably 15, 20 percent of the time max. And then you know who comes off the court? You know, even on an interview after uh, you know a match at Wimbledon and they ask him, they say, well, how'd you play? You know, it was, it was good. You know, I mean, I, I had some things I got to work on. This wasn't that sharp, but Hey, I felt pretty good. It's rare that they say, man, I was absolutely flawless. I felt like I was, a, you know, just everything was clicking. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Everything that every word you said, I could have said it myself. It's, you know, I would have played maybe five, six matches a year where I felt as though I was playing at my best. And you get to understand that. And here's another thing too. I think on that note is that knowing that, when, when you go out on the court, however you're playing that day is how you're playing. That's the reality. Right. I, here's, here's some good advice, I think, for players. The instant that a player starts comparing himself with how he's playing that particular day with how he played last week or the previous month, 
then his mind is diverted from where it should be, namely playing the actual match. So he's diluting the effect that he can have. He's not thinking about the right things. He's not thinking about strategy. He's actually playing against himself. Right. And these are the things that you need to learn to, to manage as a player. And I say, on, on that note again, I'd like to say something else as far as players getting the most out of themselves. You said a very astute thing is that players think they're giving their best when actually they're not. Now, they're honestly mistaken. But that's where the coach can play a tremendous role because it's extraordinary the impact you can have on somebody when you tell them, look, you're good, but you're a lot better than you actually know you are. Uh, and I know in my own case, you talk about the effect words can have on you when you're younger. I was playing a match in England and Sam Davidson, a former Swedish player, he was watching me play and he came up after, after my match and he said, Chris, he said, I think you're good enough. He said, I guarantee, I would bet that you're good enough where you're one day going to make at least the Wimbledon semi-final. And that had a tremendous impact on me because even though I had an enormous amount of self-belief, hearing that from somebody that was a well-respected pro himself older than me, had a tremendous impact, just as a coach can have enormous impact on young players who don't quite know yet just how good they are. They mm -hmm. know in terms of potential, but they, you know, they don't know how that potential is going to be actualized. So I think that you know, that's, you've, got to, you've got to realize as a coach just how much impact and influence, positive influence you can have on young developing players. Yeah, and I think that's the standard we're talking about. So when you compete, if you're having this this kind of like gold standard, you're not going to make it very often, and you're just going to get frustrated. And that's why you just have to say, look, whatever whoever I brought to the dance, that's who I dance with, and that's I got to figure out how to how to not trip on my feet, you know. So when I'm dancing with oh. the person I brought, that's what I got to figure out, and and not to play this other standard. Now we can all say, look, man, I know my backhand's better than this, or I know my serve. Well, then adjust it so it gets there you know but don't wallow in the sorrow you know that a lot of juniors do you know exactly it's why perfectionism gets a bad name because people try and be perfect with things that they can't be perfect about so you're not going to play a perfect match ever but those who expect to are just setting themselves up for guaranteed disappointment but you can be perfect about the effort you put in yes you can come off you can come off the court knowing that you gave it 100 percent your best and it was a perfect effort but you're not going to hit every ball perfectly. If you think you are, you're just guaranteed to have a major disappointment every third or fourth point. Not going to happen. <laughs> right. How big is fitness for you when you were developing? How much time did you spend uh, on it as a junior? A huge amount because I was influenced heavily. I did a lot of reading when I was younger. And Harry Hoffman, who was the number one influence in the game at the time, he was responsible for the Labors and the Roaches and the Hodes and the Rosewells and uh, the John Newcombs, and later on, John Alexander, Phil Dent, he put a, put a tremendous amount of emphasis on being in physical shape. And because of that, uh, I, I was influenced by him. And also, we had a couple of New Zealand players, Oni Perrin and Brian Fairley, both of whom were reach a very high international level. And I had my first experience with with. Uh, practicing with both those guys when I was 15 years old. And Brian was an unbelievable workhouse. He himself had also been influenced by Hoffman. And I saw then just how important the physical side of things was. And I, I, I made a huge effort to make sure I always looked after myself physically. Well, uh, if any juniors are listening, if you heard him say a word in there that seems to be um, kind of avoided these days. He read a lot. 
and that's important, you know, to be able to get those perspectives. Plus, reading also helps you uh, develop, you know, logic, etc. So when you're out on the court, you got to figure things out. So uh, that's just even a kind of a side note there. But one of the things you mentioned about uh, Roach and Hopman, so uh, they influenced you greatly. Um, how did uh, what made them great, and how has that affected you as a coach? We're going to talk about your coaching later, but you know, it's a perfect segue. You mentioned them, so you know. How, how was that maybe different for juniors back then? Like, uh, do, do you think kids work as hard these days? Do you push them? I know you push them hard, but, uh, and then how does that influence your coaching? Well, as far as, is Hopman and, and Tony, Mr. Hopman and Tony, as far as they went, uh, they were extraordinarily individualistic in their approach. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how in depth we're going to get into this later on, but, their coaching philosophies were identical to mine. And uh, if we could go into it a little in depth, I can explain that pretty thoroughly. There are basically two fundamental coaching philosophies. The first is that there's a school of thought which starts with a blueprint of how the game should be played. And usually that blueprint involves the current number one player, whoever that is. And then every player who is coached by a particular coach, they attempt to fit them into that blueprint, and it becomes basically like a coaching by numbers or a, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a sort of a, almost like a cloning one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, that was the exact antithesis of um, Mr. Hopman and Tony. Uh, what they did was they started with the individual, and then they would look at that individual's attributes, look at the personality, and then shape a game that was – well, certainly um, – with Mr. Hopman and Tony, you know, exactly the same, although there was a, you know, in those days, everyone was servant volley, but things were shaped consistent with the individual uniqueness of the player, rather than starting with a blueprint that you try to fit into everybody into. And I think that's the two fundamental philosophies and they're in direct opposition to one another. Yeah, well, uh, and it's okay for because I was going to talk about that later, but uh, let's go ahead and uh, maybe develop that a little bit. Um, let me just give an example. Um, you know, we know that uh, geometry has a huge impact in tennis. You know, if I get closer to net, if I get closer to the potential uh, angles that they're hitting a ball, you know, if it's in the if it's in the deuce corner, that's why I gotta be in position at net in a certain place to be able to cover the possible angles, and the possible angles are based on that a person's ability. First off. But getting getting closer to the ball gives me a better chance of hitting it. The further back I am, the more angle, the more running I have to do, et cetera. So let's say somebody serves in volleys um, or, you know, I'm trying to give an example of let's say they're, they're trying to individualize it. I mean, because I would agree with you 100%, is somebody who's not really – if you're going to be a defensive player, you got to be the fastest person on the planet, kind of like Michael Chang. He was just fast. If you're not fast, <laughs> you should not be a defensive player. Um, you know, if you've got, if you're six foot five and you've got a massive serve and a pretty darn good volley and you're not really, you know, adept at foot, then you probably should serve in volley or get into it into the net at least a little bit. Um, but so within a certain range, like for example, I, I try and get, you know, as much as possible people to be all court players, get them to sneak in behind balls. If somebody's outstretched for a slice, you get in there. Now, some people are going to be more, a little quicker. And they can do that better. Some people have to wait for a shot, even a better shot, to get in and hurt them. I, I know you agree with that. You got to hurt them on the approach somehow. So, um, is that what you're talking about? You you, you can maybe have this this general uh, direction you want to push people, but some people just can't 
can't go there, so you got to give them something a little different. Oh, 100%. Everything that you said there, Steve, is absolutely valid. But then let's take it a little further. Take examples, say, of Borg and McEnroe, where you've got games that could not be more opposite. You've got personalities that could be more opposite. Let's say you took a 13-year-old McEnroe, McEnroe and gave him to a coach that felt that everybody should play like Borg. Mm-hmm. My bet is that by the time that McEnroe was 15, he would have quit the game. Quit. He would have, he would have no, exploded. <laughs> exploded. And the same thing if you were to take you know, Federer and right. try and fit him into a Nadal mold. Right. How long would that last you right. know, with a 13-year-old Federer right. with his, with his uh, game compared to – and both un- you know, incredible games. I mean, you know, the best players on the planet. But can you imagine trying to make one into the other and how detrimental that would have been? There are coaches who do that. That was the genius of, Mac, of, of Mr. Hoffman. He had a lot to do with John's development, and he recognized that he was unique, and he let him run with it. So he took what he had and just let it. He guided him in the fundamentals, but he did not try and reshape him into an image that John clearly wasn't going to fit into. Mm-hmm. That was Mr. Hoffman's genius. Well, going along those lines then, because you mentioned, okay, so you have a blueprint mode, which wasn't, uh, you know, antithesis of, of what you're doing. Uh, then you have individualized attributes, et cetera, and you maximize those. Well, now that means, that implies that you have to evaluate a player. So how do you, Chris Lewis, evaluate a player for matches, for development, for potential, their game style? How do you do that? I'm going to kill two birds with one stone here. You spoke about the champion's attributes. I want to take a, a macro view here, Steve. Okay. And I want to say when it comes to evaluation, because there's so many things that go into evaluating a player and then uh, determining you know, what are the things, what are the requirements if uh, some, a player is going to become a champion? Well, I'd like to expand on that a little bit. I think there are four categories by which you evaluate a player. Number one is, and this is not, in order. This is, these have all got equal status. You've got the technical. You have to have technical expertise. You've got to, that's number one. You've got to have strategic expertise. Or strategic, you've got to be clever strategically. So you've got the technique. You've got the strategy. Then you've got the physical side of things, agility, hand-eye coordination, reflexes, stamina, uh, foot speed, all of the things that relate to the physical side of things, and then the fourth one, of course, is the mental. So you've got those four major categories, all of which subsume a number of subcategories. So, you know, take, for example, the mental side of it, how do players perform under pressure? What are they like at closing out matches, et cetera? Or the strategic side of it, do they play cross-court or down the line? Do they come in or do they stay back? Do they hit high looping balls? Do they flatten it out? It's a, these are all strategic decisions. Uh, physically, if somebody's not fast around the court, uh, obviously that's going to hurt them badly. So let's take let's take Roger, and we'll evaluate him in each of those four categories. You've got, first of all, the technical. Well, if you're rating him out of 10, hard not to give him a 10. If you're looking at him strategically, I think his, his tennis IQ is just beyond belief. So I've watched him play, and the the instant that he sees a weakness, uh, he, he he recognizes the weakness. He acts on it. The guy's got such an incredibly high tennis IQ. Strategically, he's superb. Uh, ten out of ten physically. Well, you know, he floats around the court. The guy's extraordinary. Uh, ten out of ten. And what's he like mentally? Well, how can you question anything other than a ten out of ten with the track record that he's had? Now you're the best tennis player in tennis history. 
10 out of 10 in all four categories, which is unbelievably rare. So, you know, getting back to that question about the five uh, primary characteristics of champions, I would rephrase it uh, or reshape the actual uh, approach and say it's those four categories that they need to excel in. And to the extent that somebody does is the exact extent to which they're a good player. Now, you mentioned you mentioned uh, maybe one in there is the, the confidence, and maybe that's the fifth thing. We talked well, one time, confi- you mentioned the confidence. Um, yeah, and uh, let me yeah let me stand on that. That would be, the confidence would come under the mental side of things. Ah, okay. So, you know, it's, that, let's put it under the mental category. You've got confidence, which is a direct result of confidence. That's what gives rise to it. So you take any profession, not just tennis, but any profession, the higher up you go, the fewer people there are capable of the heights that people reach in their professions. So when you take tennis, people at the very top are capable of doing things that others just can't do. Otherwise, they would be at the top as well. And when you go up that, make that progression upwards towards the top and you see what you're capable of, the evidence is there to support that capability and the end result of the, the result of that is confidence. So let me give you an example of, of like Ivan Lendl, for example, in discussions with Ivan, he told me that when he was younger that uh, people would ask him what his aspirations were and he would just matter-of-factly tell people that he thought he could be and wanted to be number one in the world. It was just a normal course of conversation. Uh, Jimmy Connors uh, turned up at the U.S. Open before he'd won a Grand Slam. And in a press conference, a press asked him, Jimmy, what do you think of your chances this year? And he said, put it this way, gentlemen, there's 127 losers here in me. <laughs> I had a, yeah, exactly. I had a conversation with, with Boris Becker uh, after he won Wimbledon as a 17-year-old two or three years later, sitting having dinner with him. I said, Boris, how did you feel going into Wimbledon that year, the first year you, you know, when you won it as a 17-year-old? And he said, Chris, he said, I, I knew I would win it. So this is, here are, are players that have reached the ultimate height of being number one, and all of them have this extraordinary confidence. Now remember, that this is when they were younger, so they had this self-belief that was part of their core. And without it, if you don't believe that you're capable of being number one, there is no way you're going to be number one. But but you need the, you need the evidence to support it. You can't just be that, that outwardly... Uh, the, the braggart who says he's got to be number one in the world, and clearly there's no evidence to support it. I'm not talking about that. These were players who had been asked a question. I asked Boris a question. He gave me a genuine answer. People would ask Ivan a question. A gen- he wasn't, they weren't going around bragging. They just genuinely believed that they had what it took to become number one in the world. Yeah, and I, I, I'd like to make a distinction here and see what you think is you um... – for somebody to not say, like for example, if, if there's a young player out there who says, you know what, I want to be you know, on tour or I want to be great or I want to be you know, top 100 or whatever, just because they're not now doesn't mean they can't be in the future. And I think a lot of kids out there and a lot of players think, well, wait a minute, if I can't win this tournament, then pff, who, am I, who am I kidding? I'm not going to win the net. Well, that's not true. People have completely different developmental stages, and sometimes it just clicks. 
And then all of a sudden you're this monster out there. And I think they, uh, that, you know, to encourage them to say, look, it doesn't matter if you're number one in the, there's a lot of play, uh, number one in the juniors in this category or this category, because right now you're just in this developmental stage, you know, a couple of years from now, uh, th- there's a, a player recently that retired on tour um, who never won a title ever and was as high as 20 in the world. Multimillionaire. Although, you know, once, once again, here's, you know, here's a couple of examples. And I might, be, I, I, I might not get the rankings exactly right, but it's certainly ballpark. Take Andre Agassi. When he was 19, I believe, I think he got as high as number three very close to being number three. And the same age, Pat Rafter was not even in the ballpark. He wasn't even close to being that high. We're talking, I don't know, but he was, I would say at 19, Pat was still playing low-level futures or the equivalent of in those days satellite tournaments uh, at 19 years old. So here's two players that became number one in the world who at 19, where there was a huge divide between the respective developments. And yet they both went on to have unbelievable careers. Andre already at 19 had had an unbelievable career. However, you know that's exactly what you're talking about. There's the potential, and when that is actualized, uh, it can be very, very different. Having said that, there's got to be some evidence mm-hmm. to support right. that that end goal is achievable. Right, and and that's the process. They know, okay, I'm getting better. I'm winning more than I'm not uh, than I was than I'm losing rather. Um, and then, for example, also understanding your game style. Perfect example you gave. You have Andre, and then you have Patrick. To serve in volley, you have to be an athlete. You have to be explosive, and you have to be strong, and you have to be able to react quickly to balls. And a lot of players with kind of an all-court aggressive game, if they start out that young, uh, it's tough because they only have so much width. You know, they only have so much well, speed. But as they get older and they still have that game style, that's going to blossom. I think, you know, like, I, I think yeah, exactly right. Take Pete Tampres, for instance. He, you know, even though he was a, a very early developer, Michael Chang was even earlier. And Michael had a, more of a baseline sort of a game, mm-hmm. uh, whereas, you know, Pete was, was more of a, he was a serve volleyer. He came in all the time, and it took a little while longer for his game to mature. Uh, both great players, obviously. Uh, Jim Courier was in that mold as well. Jim matured earlier, I think reached his peak earlier than Pete did. But exactly what you're talking about, game style has a huge amount to do with it. I think it, it's, it takes longer to develop the more serve volley type game. It's a longer game where you, you get to know it and manage it yourself. Yeah. Along this line of confidence, I think it's really important, is um, one of the things I spend a lot of time with, even with my teams, my players, and just even some of the writing I do, it's called deliberate practice. I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, speaking and research on this. Um, Erickson, etc. But one of the issues is deliberate practice is you have a stretch goal. The goal should be very difficult to attain, but as you mentioned, it's reasonable, it's possible. You have to have 100% focus, and this is where I think most people falter, is they don't have enough focus, even with my team or you know college players. Sometimes I'll say, look, I want you to focus for 10 minutes on this one task and see if you can not dip at all. Not distracted, not not uh, you know. Always have a positive response, etc. Then you have to have immediate feedback, and I think this is where and this is another whole discussion. But I think this is where a lot of our lack of coaching uh, during tournaments, etc. They can't get feedback. Um, there's no there's no 
educational institution in the world that would say, okay, we're going to have you uh, take this test in math, and we'll let you know what the results are three years, uh, three months from now, and then in the meantime, just study. Well, no, you, you have to have immediate feedback so you know what needs work, and that happens in competition during the competition. So that's one of the things I like about college is they get immediate feedback, and you can learn to adjust those things. But in practice, you need a stretch goal, 100% focus, feedback, and then repetition. And if you do that enough, if, that, if you're focused enough, even over a period of an hour or an hour and a half, and you have multiple different tasks, you know, you're not going to spend the same thing for an hour and a half, but you have multiple different tasks, and you just do that over and over and over. This, these are the traits of what are called elite musicians, mathematicians, uh, athletes, etc. And it's just hours and hours and hours of work. That's where you build your confidence because it's just it's just part of who you are, and that's what you do day in and day out. So your match is no it's 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 actually less difficult than your practice. It should be. Because when you get into a match, then it's like, oh, I've done this a couple thousand times, and it's a it's a thoughtless process. Um, oh, uh, absolutely! And it's like driving a car. You start off driving a car, and particularly with a stick shift, everything is labored. You got to think about what you're doing, and it becomes you know, you it's a conscious effort. I got to you know, push the clutch in. I got to move the gears, in. and then two years later, you're thinking about what you're going to do on the weekend while you're driving a car. You're still in focus. But everything's automated. Now you're still thinking about it. It just happens so quickly right. that it appears automatic. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, Steve. Is that you do something often enough, it appears automatic. It's just that the process is so quick between deciding to take action and taking action. It seems like it is just instinctive and automatic. And that's exactly what I think you're talking about. Just talking about stretch goals for a second, uh, I'd like to expand on that a little. Um, when I saw. The, the the labors and the roaches players and 11 year old and those cited, hey, one day that's what I want to be doing. I want to tr- win Wimbledon. You know, I'm projecting 10, 15, 20 years down the track. And then previous to that, I'd only had short term goals. And the short term goals were I want to win the local tournament. Those then turned into I want to 15 years from now win Wimbledon. So boy, do those long term and, you know, you can call them stretch goals, do they. Did they get your attention? Because now you think, oh my gosh, this is how good these players are. How do I get from where I am now to where they are? So everything takes on an urgency. And then those mm-hmm. shorter term goals are basically just stepping stones. And then you, you know, I made, you know, in my coaching, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm trying to get a player to serve a certain speed, and I'll say to them, look, two years from now, uh, let's say you could turn your 80 mile an hour serve into 104 miles an hour, and they think, oh my gosh, it's 24 miles an hour. That is tough. I, uh, I don't know about that. And I say, well, let's break it down. What if you each month could serve one mile an hour faster for the next two years? And then you know, the penny drops. My gosh, that's 24 miles an hour, and that's only one mile an hour per month. Mm-hmm. That's very achievable and doable. And they said, let's break it down to weeks, and you know, you get down to a quarter of a mile an hour per week, and it seems like nothing. So that 24-mile-an-hour daunting prospect becomes incredibly uh, easy to achieve if you break it down into a quarter of a mile an hour a week. Uh, and you can apply that principle anywhere. So here's, here's the goal setting and the, the long-term versus the short-term and how important it is to break up those long-term goals or the stretch goals into more achievable goals that they can see in the short term. Well, this is when you talked about, you called it mastery. And this is this is what we should be coaching towards is mastery. So I, the, 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 the player shouldn't be thinking, well, what about that? Don't compare yourself to other players unless it's something to motivate you. 
It's like, what are you doing? Are you, are you actually, you know, I give a, I give a story of, uh, for example, uh, when I was working with down south, some players, and I had them serving volley, and they couldn't let the ball bounce. And at the first, they looked at me like I was nuts, you know. And then after a while, they got in there, and they could actually, you know, move up to the ball and run through it a little bit and, and not let it bounce. And then all of a sudden, now they can play some real doubles and some singles. Um, but if you just have those stretch goals where it's like, okay, uh, this motion we're going to fix. Um, that's all we care about. We don't care about, you know, if you can beat that person. You know, this is what you were alluding to earlier, the stuff you can control. You can control your effort, what what you're executing in a match. You cannot control if you get sick, if you roll an ankle, if Federer is in the tournament. You, you Your goal may be to win the tournament. Well, you can't. You can't control that. You can control your effort and your progress and your mastery every day. And that's and what you're really good at. And the, absolutely. And the best you can do is prepare for the unexpected by saying, hey, there are things that are going to come up that I cannot anticipate. I know that. So when those unanticipated events happen, I am mentally prepared for it because I'm expecting the unexpected. Yeah. Uh, you learn that good. very early on as well. Yeah. Yeah. For, forewarned is forearmed. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you, how do you uh, along this line of confidence, how do you, um, if it's a characteristic of a champion, how do you instill it? Like, for, what are the necessary components, for example, winning matches, executing? Some players can do it in practice, and they go into a match. How do you help a player develop that confidence? I think you've got to demonstrate to the player that he is, and he understands or she understands that they are competent, that they have mastery over whatever it is, whatever it is the skill involves. And it's like anything. If you apply for a job and you know your material and you've done the preparation and you feel as though uh, you've researched the company uh, with whom you're applying the job for, applying to the job for, uh, you know a lot about the company, you know what the job entails and you're genuinely capable of doing it, you work in there very confidently. If you haven't got mastery over the subject matter, You've got no reason to feel. There's no justification for feeling confident. Otherwise, it's just misplaced. Uh, and you're not going to do well, even if you do get the job and you're not equipped to handle the job, you'll get found out very quickly. And I think deep down, I think you know that. I think you know whether you are good enough to achieve the heights that you've set for yourself. And that only, though, comes with a mastery. And then getting back to the, you know, the technical and strategic, and the, you've got to know that you are mentally tough. You've got to know that you're physically capable. You've got to know that you're strategically smart. You've got to know that you're technically sound. So you need the evidence, and the, the result of that, the effect of that, is the confidence. It's the secondary. The primary is what gives rise to it. So digging deeper, though, for example, let's say you know and I know that a player has that competence. We tell them, we say, man, you are, you know, I had one time I told a player, I said, man, you, you are a baller. And he says, I've never had anybody tell me that before. And I said, wow. Exactly. You know? But yeah. even if I tell him that, um, and he was, you know, he's a college player, and even if I tell him that, and you said deep down inside they know, well, here's the point. How do, how would you, uh, because they have the skill set, and they're a fighter, and how does it manifest it? For example, some people get in a match, and when it gets tough, they don't do the things they do in practice that we would say, hey, you're a baller. In other words, you do X, Y, Z in practice. Man, you can play. And then they go in a match, and they don't do X, Y, Z. 
Is it and because I, they're uh, they they deep down inside don't have that confidence, or do you think it's because well I've won this way before, so I'll try it? Um, because like let me give an example. If somebody's been going cross court, cross court, waiting for that short ball, and then they pop the open court. Well, in a match, maybe they don't want to pop that open court too soon, and they just keep going cross court, and then the other person takes advantage of the shot. Okay, here's what I'd say. I, I think it's the role that emotions play in playing speed. I think that that emotion that they're basing their decision on sounds to me like fear. So a player has to understand the relationship between what gives rise to emotions, and they've got to understand when their emotions are being treated as primaries and when they basically neglected the mind in favor of those emotions. And all emotions are, and this is something I think that all players should understand because it's tremendously helpful. Emotions are not a primary. They're a result of an evaluation. So, for example, you've got a big point, huge point in the match, and it's so strong, there's a physiological reaction. My heart would pound right. on the big point because I knew the consequences of winning it or losing it were huge. Everything was gained from winning it and everything lost from losing it. So, you know, one of those crisis points, but understanding that that emotion is the product of how you've evaluated the situation, that's all it is, uh, gives you a tremendous confidence to be able to deal with it. The players who just feel the emotion and just act on it impulsively, they then are at a tremendous disadvantage. So what you have to do is you've got to get underneath that emotion and you've, you've got to examine what's giving rise to it. And once you understand where it's coming from, it cooks you far better to deal with any given situation. People get angry, for instance, and all they've got to do is examine why they get angry instead of just giving into the rage. Because if you know that the rage is going to affect your game negatively, then it's crazy to let that happen. And if you say to yourself beforehand, okay, there are things that are going to happen that upset me. I know that, but I'm going to shut that emotion down. It's out of my control. Like Here's an example. I'm playing Davis Cup in India, and there are people in the five or 6,000 crowd that are shining mirrors in my eyes when I'm playing. <laughs> or as I'm serving a second serve in unison, they'll be going, uh, double fault. Now, I can either give in to that and let them get the better of me or can understand that, hey, they're deliberately trying to provoke me into making a mistake or they're trying to blind me so I can't play. If I give in to that, that emotion of anger, they're going to get the better of me and I lose and they win. I'm not going to let that happen. So understanding what gives rise to that anger of emotion and, and then you're able to deflect it, you're able to suppress it and play accordingly. I think that's the answer to it, Steve, is yeah. knowing why you're fearful without, you know, with not going down the line when you should, uh, and knowing what gives rise to that gives you a tremendous amount of confidence in your game. Let me throw this out there and see what you think. Um, you know, one of my uh, podcasts earlier is on neuroplasticity, and it has to do with uh, how we how our brains rewire and things like that. But the point is this. We have certain responses to, and you mentioned here, it's just um, it's emotion versus, let's say, rationale, et cetera. Um, and right. you deal with it ahead of time. But you just have a, you just missed a ball. It's just a ball. And one, one thing I told a player recently, I said, you know what? You've missed five balls in a row, and you're upset. I go, but you know what? Maybe that's only five balls out of the next thousand you're going to miss. That's, that's a very small percentage. But what you're doing is you're making it five out of five. It could be only five out of the next hundred balls, and that's pretty darn good. 
So why make a big deal of it right now? It's just a ball you miss. So now you go into a match and you miss the ball. And we, we like you said, we, we attach these emotions. Why? Well, because the match is important, because I want to beat that person, because other people are looking, because of whatever, Throw fill in, fill in the blank, when it's just a ball. And if we understand, and if I had understood this when I was a player, I probably, <laughs> you know, I would have been a lot healthier. But it, Absolutely. Well, I'm talking, it's great advice, Steve. I, I think that uh, what you're really talking about here, too, is context, is people drop the context. It could be five in a row, but it could be five out of 50 that they've missed. Right. But what they do is they cannot get past those five. On the coaching court, for instance, I'll have a player that will miss a couple of shots, and they'll get visibly upset, and I'll say, hey, look, you're not going to hit a perfect ball every time. What you've got to understand is that ball that you just missed is an opportunity to improve it, correct it. That's all it is. You're not going to make – like, how many points would Roger have won in his career? All up. What what percentage would you say? I don't know the exact figure, but would it be between fifty and sixty? Would yeah, be the number of points that he wins? Well, it's fifty. It's fifty. It's it's a one percent difference when you talk about the points won between uh, when they play most of the matches in the pros. Exactly. So 1%. you know, here's the, the you know the greatest players in the world are only winning just over fifty percent of the points they're playing in their matches. So <clears throat> imagine if every time they lost a point, they're getting angry and upset. How well would they play then? No, I mean this. This is great. That you're the the next question I had, and you segued right into it. Is what do you say or do when your players are struggling? And you just mentioned that. And then, but here's I got a question here. Let's say you're working on a technique and they're struggling, just like you said. Do you press until they break through, or do you move on to something else as a coach? I think also this depends on the individual. Everybody's got a different threshold. So there'll be some players that will just be so determined you know they're not going to sleep at night unless they get a breakthrough that day. So you'll push harder with them. There'll be others where the threshold is a little lower and they get frustrated and, and they uh, want to move on to something else where they're less. You've got to make a judgment call. Uh, and I think that comes down to the individual. Some you know, people are different. And I think uh, I prefer to go in deep. I've got a personal preference myself. If I'm working on something, I want to keep going until I'm <laughs> right. master it, yeah, until yeah. I prove it. Right. Not everybody is like that. They would rather move on and uh, work on something else uh, and then come back and attack it the next day. So it's that's where the coach has got to make a judgment call, in my view. Yeah. Moving on to a little bit when you were in the pros or just – and we can and, – and there's enough you've said here that I think if some people can understand this, it's the – you're, the big time is where you are, because when you were 11 years old and you were in your backyard imagining something, that was the big time. And those little moments become the big time. And then it just pro- relatively proportionally becomes bigger as you move on. So then you won some local tournaments. That was your big time. Then you won some other tournaments. And that was your big time. And you need those to develop that mindset. So when you get into the big time, you know, the pros, then you, you've kind of, quote unquote, been there. And so my so question accurate, Steve. So my question is, what did you feel in those moments so so you can relate? Some people say, oh, well, he was a pro. He's already there. Well, no, the big times were he at. So when you got into those moments, did you think things like, oh, my gosh, just get the stinking ball in the court? Or did you just say, you know what? Because you mentioned you kind of pushed a return and you were kicking yourself. You said, man, I should have hit the thing. So what can well, we learn? What can some uh, listeners learn from that? I, I think what we can learn is this, is that when I look back and you don't obviously realize it at the time, but when you look back in retrospect, when I was out there playing my brothers in those imaginary 
Wimbledon's and Davis Cup matches, it was real. I genuinely made that real. So that when I walked onto the court at Wimbledon, even though I hadn't been on those courts before, I felt as though I had. It was real. So I think that the lesson to be learned is that when you're out on the court working on something, trick yourself into believing that you're practicing and playing the shot in an actual match. Yes. And that match might be at the U.S. Open. So you've got to prepare yourself. In the same way, musicians, they will go out and they will go on stage and they will go through the motions of the next day or the next week's performance by familiarizing themselves. So that when they go out there, they're mentally prepared. And I think that's what players have to do. There's any situation that they can, they've got to make a practice situation that's, that's not real tricking themselves into believing that they actually are at Wimbledon, that they actually are at the U.S. Open, that they are playing tournaments, so that when they do play them, it's a visualization technique, essentially, and it works, no doubt. One, one of the things I did one time is, uh, you know, one of my players a little more focused. I said, okay, pick your favorite player on tour. So they gave it to me. So I write their name on a headband, put it on their head, and I said, all right, you got something to live up to. You know, because some guys, for example, if they pick Fed, then they can't have any meltdowns. They can't be – they can't have any – uh, mental meltdowns. You know, if they're an adult, they got to run. I mean, they got to be just tenacious. You know, some guys pick right. some other players like Curios, and okay, I'm all okay. <laughs> you know, you you might have the meltdown, but um, uh, let me ask you a question here. One thing often players, um, I tell players is watch the ends of matches. You know, people say, hey, I watched a match, but then they don't watch the end. And I said, well, look, if you're going to watch the pros or or the players better than you, watch the end. Because that's, you know, you know, we can all start fast and kind of fade and come and go. But how, you know, to, to, to finish those matches. So my question for you is, um, and I think you mentioned one before, but what do you give advice to players to finish off matches? I, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, I don't really take an egalitarian approach where, you mm -hmm. know, I'll tell players that all points are the same and no matter what the score is. Treated as though you know all points are equal in status. I'm not a subscriber to that. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to understand where the important points are. Okay. And for me, it's understanding that not getting so caught up in yourself and in your own nerves, but telling yourself that if, if you are nervous, telling yourself that hey, the other guy out there, uh, if you're closing out a match, for instance, and it's near the end of a match and you're closing it out, if you're the guy in the lead. I tell myself, gosh, I'd much rather be the guy in the lead than the guy that's coming from behind. I'm only a couple of points away from closing this out. This is my match. And right. I always felt good like that pretty much. Uh, when I was the guy coming from behind, I would tell myself that the other guy was, you know, he, he's going to tighten up here. He's going to get a little tight. And I'm going to be looking for signs for the tightness. So I would, I would not be so much into myself. I mm -hmm. would be more observing the other guy. And that's where the tennis scoring system is so fantastic. It because it gives you the opportunity, you know, you lose the first set, you can come back from behind, you've got ebbs and flows, and, and it just takes five minutes, and two games can go by. So it's very rare that you play somebody of your own ability where there's not some window of opportunity where you can come back, but at the same time be very aware if you're the one who's in the lead to make sure you try and keep that window closed. So yeah. I, I, various techniques. I mean, we could go into that in real depth. That's right. the psychological side of the game. Yeah, I call, how do you perform under pressure? Yeah, I call that spin it like a politician. 
you, you give one set of facts and two sides will give you the positive, how they view it. And you just, you just got to, whatever you get, you spin it, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit, but at the same time, it's like, you know, like a, a political analysis from uh, newspapers uh, from two very different viewpoints. The facts are the same. Right. It's the slant you put on them. Right. Yeah. I'm behind. Well, that's yeah. good, man. The other guy might choke or I'm ahead. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's good. That's where I yeah. want to be, you know? Exactly. I think that's, you know, it's, it's that optimistic is exactly what you say. You've got to, it's a mindset. You've got to come into each situation with a mindset that's going to give you the most chance of coming back from behind or closing out the match. What I'm hearing, you're saying there has to be a lot of prep of your mindset, particularly if you know you have certain tendencies. Your mindset should be made up ahead of time. How am I going to deal with this? Oh, you get to know yourself. When you're out there under pressure, and that's where you find out about it, people, including yourself, is that what tendencies do you have under pressure? And that's why when you say, Steve, it's great advice, watch the end of a match because that's when the pressure is, mm -hmm. the most pressure. And that's where you, you – and, and I would also say another great technique is tell your player, your student, watch the end of the match, but not just that. Pick a player, and before that player hits particular shots – you second-guess him or her. Ask yourself where you would go and see how accurate you are in what you guessed and what they ended up doing. That will tell you a lot right. about where you are strategically. Well, this segues into something, a question I asked myself right before the show. I said, okay, this is, this is really common. I have a player, and I'll give two examples. I have a player come off the court, and I'll say, okay, so – you know, if they get a chance to kind of think about things, but we have another match, so we got to be ready, even though they won or lost. I say, look, what went what went well and what didn't go so well in that match? Let's say they lost. They say, well, my serve let me down. I said, well, how many times did you have a fault? Well done. Uh, how many times? It, it wasn't their serve. It was something else. Um, or somebody might say, yeah, I was up 5-2 and it got away from me. And I'll say, aside from video, obviously we have video these days, but let's let's take that out because not everybody has video capacity. So, so you say, okay, so what happened? Well, I don't know. You, you don't know. You don't know what happened at five two. You know what shots happened. I mean, did you, did you double fall? Did you move? Did you lose? Did you go to sudden death? Did you? That's another story. But did you? Uh, were they close games? Did you lose love for? I, I don't remember. You know, aside from me pulling my hair out, how? Uh, what would you? As a, what kind of technique or what would you do to try and help players get more? I call it conscious. <laughs> of what they're doing in the match. And you mentioned tendencies. They have to understand that they got to pay attention to what's working, their strengths against weaknesses, et cetera. Well, give me a – is there a practical thing that you do with players, to say, you know, maybe a post-match evaluation or something? I don't know. During a match? Well, Steve, I mean, you know, and, and I'm a layman here. You know, I'm not a psychologist. But for me personally, I wasn't really affected that I could recall pretty much every point of a match, certainly the important points where the score went, what I did right. on those points, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, with a with a real clarity. But I have to you know, there's there's time and time again I'll ask a junior player what happened in the match and I'll get a, a post mortem of the match and then I'll watch the video. Yeah. And it's Dude. not even close to describing the reality of what actually happened. So and the key I, is like, you I, you can remember everything, but they can't. So what do we do to help them the do The emotions. That? I think they got to make sure that, because obviously their mind was a blur. Mm -hmm. If you can't recall what happened on important points, I'm sorry, but the emotions are running rampant and your mind is a blur. 
uh, it's as simple as that. I think it's just the emotions just taking control and they can't think straight. They don't know how to manage and regulate their emotions. I think it's as simple as that. I think you're 100% right. And that's why I think you, and it's another topic, but I think even when we have um, serious things in life that go on that people don't, that's called temporary amnesia, they don't remember an event, car accident. They don't remember things because the emotions are protecting them. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's interesting. Um, I wanted to see, um, you mentioned, uh, well, this is kind of along the lines of game plans. Um, you know, Borg, I remember reading one time, and you played them. I, in fact, I saw the tape. It was, uh, man, it, when people saw the shorts we used to wear, they usually laugh, but really short shorts. But um, when you were playing them, I th- uh, <laughs> the, the, the video I watched, there were some Chinese commentators. So it was, it was pretty interesting to watch you two play and then have Chinese commentary. But um, he, he said, you know, I don't think a lot out there. And, you know, going in, we're always talking about, hey, you got to have a, you have a game style, you want to have some tact, you know, you want to have a game plan. And within that, you kind of tweak it. You know, you have plan A, plan A.1. You know, if I'm going to serve in volley, but the guy's got a great backhand cross court, if I kick it out wide, well, then maybe I'm going to slice it down the tee to take away his angle and I'm going to have to hit my volley from there, whatever. You're not going to abandon ship, but you got to tweak it. Well, what what kind of um, – again, this probably goes with the different type, types of players, but are you more towards, hey, just kind of let it go on natural, or are you more let – no, you got to go in there with the game plan and stick with it? And uh, No, I would go in with a general strategy, but then be prepared to change it uh, to a different set of tactics if need be. Uh, so, you know, for example, a guy might have a weaker backhand, uh, and I'll go in there with the intention of hitting big forehands into the weaker backhand uh, and getting into the net that way. And then I find out that the guy deals with pace pretty effectively, so then I'll come in on a slice, try that way. The tactic will be the, the strategy will be the same, namely try and exploit the weaker backhand, but the tactic that I use to do it might be a little different, and I will, you know, I will change, and I will... I, I don't like a sort of formulaic, mm-hmm. let's go in with this game plan right. and stick stick to it. I think that the great players... I, he's a, he was who I thought was just a great uh, strategist was Matt Willander. Mm-hmm. And observing Matt's play, he would he would change his strategy uh, after five or six points where a pattern became evident that wasn't working for him. And I played Matt's only once in Davis Cup, but he was extraordinary. It, he didn't have a huge game. He didn't have any major weaponry, but he was an extraordinary thinker. And he would, every five or six points, with a pad that wasn't working for him, he would change strategy. Well, and that's related to one of the questions I have. What's your advice? Because, you know, if somebody has confidence and they'll say, no, I'm going to play my game. If I burn, I'm going down with it. Um, There's that. Versus somebody who's just willing to abandon ship, you know, hey, man, I went in the net once, once four years ago and I got burned. I'm never going in again. And so it's this fine line of he's changing every five points. What what advice do you give to players like, look, man, this is what you should be doing. This is what you've been practicing. This is the right thing, the right shot. Yeah, you lost the point. How soon do they tweak it? How soon do they change it? I I think, you know, you've got to take cognizance of reality. And yeah. if you continue to beat your your head against the brick wall of reality, uh, you know, you're doing it for hours and weeks and months on end and not making any progress. Reality is going to win every time. Mm-hmm. You have got to conform to reality. Now, if something is not working, obviously you've got to make a change, and you've got to be constantly looking for the identification of those things 
that are not working for you and then evaluating them and responding accordingly. So reality is the final Right, but the, and this goes back to your point about the emotions. If they're in a match and they've been executing this stuff in practice and they go in and they get deer in headlights and they're too emotional, then they don't even know that the person's backhand is such and such. They And then they can't have that thought process. Absolutely. So, See, so they, they end up going to the guy's backhand, and it's the best backhand on the planet. You know what I mean? Because, yep. well, it's a backhand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, what they've got to understand is that by giving into the emotions, they're rejecting the things that the thing that they're tool for survival out on the court or anywhere is the mind. So if, if you fully understand that, it becomes so much easier. But a lot of the players, they haven't yet learned to distinguish between what's driving them, whether it is the mind or whether, whether it is the emotions. Hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I have a couple general questions, and uh, folks, I, I, I know you've been enjoying this time, and we're going to be wrapping up pretty soon, but I have a couple general, uh, you might say, uh, not throwaway questions, but these are really important, and they affect uh, uh, you know, the tournaments I've seen in the juniors and in college. Um, you know, there's been a lot of changes in doubles. You know, they've been shortening the format, et cetera, and um, just wanted your take on – you know, in college, for example, they went from, you know, two out of three used to be, and then it was eight-game pro set, now it's six-game no ad. I mean, sometimes if, if you if you blink, it's over. And, um, and I just – I want to get your take on the importance of doubles and maybe if, you know, some people who are running tournaments and, uh, you know, folks with the various organizations, if they're listening, you know, I think doubles has to have a much greater emphasis. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, you know, at the end of the day – Sport is market-driven, and if there's no market for doubles, it's hard to combat that. And we could, I want to put that aside, though, and I want to talk from a purist perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a developmental tool, I think doubles is superb because you learn things that you don't learn on a singles court. I mean, even in life, you learn to deal with having to play with a partner, for instance, which is very valuable. You learn there's different angles, uh, the strategy's different. You learn to buy. You've got to spend a lot more time at the net. So I think to become an all-round player. Doubles is very, very beneficial. I think also, too, when you look at players who are young and developing, tennis is a sport that people can play for a lifetime. You look at older players, for instance, and doubles is played far more than singles. Right. Uh, and, and I was brought up, I played a ton of doubles when I was younger. With Interclub, I always played doubles in tournaments, and I, I genuinely loved playing doubles, even though it was secondary to singles. I loved it and looked forward to it. So from a purist perspective, I think playing doubles with having the full scoring system and not this abbreviated nonsense, I think that it's very, very beneficial for development. And I also think it's very beneficial for players to enjoy it, particularly later on. So I'm a fan of doubles. Um, you know, it's sad for me to say to see it going in the direction it's going. Yeah. Now, you mentioned um, the nonsense about shortening. So what do you think about no-ad scoring? Not much at all. <laughs> I, I think... I think it's it, anything that tends more towards rolling a dice to determine the result of a tennis match is bad. Uh, I think that, you know, shortened sets, for instance, when we were younger, we'd start sets off at two all to make it shorter in the interest of making the, the set shorter. And now this proposition that you play sets up to four, the match is over in the blink of an eye. And yeah. it's all done in the interest of, of shortening the, the time frame. And I, I don't know how much, you know, spectators enjoy it more. I certainly don't because, as I say, it's anything that they introduce that is uh, is less, it's, it's luck at the expense of skill uh, is inherently negative. 
I'm totally hostile and opposed to it. I like the way you say that. I, and, and I think only people with an accent can get away with it. <laughs> when, um, what do you think about coaching in the juniors um, in some fashion? You know, I see, I give you an example. I go to tournaments and you get young kids and, you know, whether it's a court monitor or somebody at least helping them with the score, um, you know, it's, they're just out there and the match takes five hours because they can't remember the score, you know, helping people. Cause the part of the game is they'll, other people say, well, they'll just learn. No, they're actually not. It, cause there's no feedback. There's that, that ball was in by about three feet and they can't calibrate their eyes if nobody's helping them. Um, and, and as they go along, you know, what do you think about coaching, you know, some strategy to some degree on courts during tournaments? Okay. So yeah, I, I got pretty strong views on that as well. I think yeah. let's, let's, apply the context. If you've got a novice or a beginner tournament and you've got players who have difficulty remembering this, I have no issue whatsoever with there being some sort of involvement from the coach as a just to guide things and to help things along because obviously the kids haven't reached a stage where they've got control over what they've been having on the court. They can't remember the sport. But let's put that to the side. Mm-hmm. Once a player has reached a certain level of development, let's say they are very capable of calling balls in or out, they're capable of remembering the score, they understand the rules. Once you get to that stage, you know, getting back to the attributes of a champion, one of the greatest hallmarks of a champion is the ability to be an independent thinker, to be self-reliant. Because I mentioned before that when you are working towards achieving a goal in the long run, there are plenty of obstacles along the way. You'll get people, for instance, telling you, oh, you're never going to make it as a player because you're too short, or you're never going to make it because your serve's not big enough, or this, that, and the other. And if you put too much stock into what those people play because mm-hmm. you're a, what those people say because right. you're a dependent mentality, uh, you're not going to make it. You're going to sacrifice your own opinions to the judgments of others. You have to be an independent thinker. Do you think Ivan Lendl would have listened to anybody that told him he was wasting his time, that statistically he was never going to be a pro, let alone number one in the world? He, he wouldn't have given him the time of day. Totally, utterly, absolutely self-reliant and independent in thinking and in action. So anything that you can do that... Uh, that is conducive to that is a good thing. And I think that tennis is a sport, it is, along with golf, incredibly, it's an individualistic sport, but tennis even more so. You haven't got a caddy, you haven't got anybody helping you, and I think you're doing players the best thing you can possibly do is in match situations, getting them to think for themselves. Practice matches at the time, that's the time when the coach guides and mentors, right. uh, but not all the time. Right. I think as a principle, Steve, I think developing self-reliance and independent thinking is hugely important for players because it has application not just on a tennis court, but off the court as well. Great stuff. Great. Well, Chris, I, we're going to wrap up our time here, but I, I just have one question. If there's anything that's been burning that you've wanted to mention or kind of bring up, um, you know, I'll just uh, let you do that. If there's something we touched on and you want to expand, I don't know if it's on the championship uh, characteristics or uh, those four categories, et cetera. But, um, you know, if that's, uh, you know, if there's anything you want to do, um, go for it. No, I, I just, what comes to mind when you bring that up is that just getting back to our beginning is that developing a passion for something, whatever it is, whether it's tennis or anything else in life, or else in life at an early age, uh, I think is tremendously beneficial and helpful. So tennis, 
with me has been my wife or a huge, huge part of my life. And I feel so fortunate and blessed to have at a young age found something that I turned into a career, both in a playing sense and a coaching sense. So I think for any young person or any parent of uh, a young child, that introducing them to tennis in the right environment uh, is, I think, is an incredibly healthy thing. When you look at all of the alternatives out there, uh, which young people end up getting themselves involved in, I think, you know, tennis, golf, uh, finding a passion in life early is huge. Well, that's great stuff. Folks, um, I am sure you've really enjoyed this time. Uh, You've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with coaching great and former Wimbledon finalist Chris Lewis. Be sure to like and share the podcast uh, and my website with your friends at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. There you'll find blogs, podcasts, resources, and, and more. And I also welcome your comments and questions. You can reach me at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. Let me leave you with another uh, one of my mottos. Rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. And we know, just as Chris has mentioned, he had rare greatness and it came at a steep price and he uh, the things we talked about and the, the, the characteristic of champions uh, just speak to that and it's uh, I, I'm sure you uh, gleaned a lot from what he said um, also think about this question the question of victory or not is always a matter of probability not certainty you know so if you're out there and you're it's never over that's the beauty about tennis there's never a time clock and there's always a chance. As I end every show with the Bryan Brothers music coming up, I remember, uh, remind you to just let it rip. Let it rip.